Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's Word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message. Today's verses are Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Uh, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that we might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word, so we might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does to the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. God bless this reading. He may be seated. We're talking about uh, marriage and looking at uh, different aspects and things that Paul draws out of this text that is really, um, we could spend an entire summer just trying to draw out the implications of what these are and what this means uh, for salvation, life in the church, and marriage. But what I'd like to talk to you about this morning is uh, the purpose of marriage and what Paul means and gets at in this, in this particular text. And in the, today's culture, the, the natural inclination that we have for marriage, why would you get married? The belief of the premise of the purpose of marriage is that it exists for your own happiness. Now, what, what this has done for us is uh, to marriage what it's done is heavily actually decrease the marriage rate. Uh, in 1950, uh, the percentage of homes that had a married couple in it was over 80%. Today in 2022, it's less than 48%. And part of the reason is that is if the premise to marriage and the purpose of that is to, be, is to be happy, what people have begun to figure out is that this is not the way to be happy. So let's just avoid it. But what this has done to dating is put enormous pressure on people to begin to figure out, are you perfect enough to make me happy? I mean, it's made compatibility such a thing that we've made companies who make millions and millions of dollars trying to figure out the nature of your compatibility to somebody else. Because we're terrified of ever getting to that moment that we figured out that we may have married the wrong person. In 2016, if you remember that year, a lot happened. Brexit, uh, a pretty controversial presidential election, a refugee crisis, but get this, the number one article downloaded on, from the New York Times, and it wasn't even close, was an article entitled, Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person, by a guy named Alain de Baton. And what he says is he says, it's one of the things, 
we are all afraid of that might happen to us. We got a great thing, great links to avoid it, and yet we do it all the same. We marry the wrong person. Partly it's because we have a bewildering array of problems that emerge when we try to get close to others. We seem normal only to those who don't know us very well. In a wiser, more self-aware society than our own, a standard question, though, on an early first date would be, and how crazy are you? But you have to realize this. Compatibility. The idea that you can figure out somebody who will make you happy in dating is an illusion. That's not real. Because the nature of marriage is such a big event, and we know it's such a big event because we spend so much money on it, we get engaged and plan it for 15 months, thinking it to be one of the biggest things in our life. It's such a big deal that the person who you think will make you happy will inevitably change, and so will you. So what's the answer to all this? Why why get married? What's the purpose? If it doesn't work to live for it to make you happy, you need a new purpose. And what Paul, what Paul wants to get at this morning is to press to you to say the purpose of marriage is way more profound, actually way more freeing than your own personal happiness. So let, let's look at the purpose of marriage and let's look at it under five headings. What is it? Why you need it to be that way? how it works, fourthly, a quick challenge about that, and fifth, what you need to know in order to pursue that. The purpose of marriage, what is it? Well, Paul says this in verse 25. He says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that be holy and without blemish. In verse 25, he's talking about the husband's role, and he's uh, alluding it and connecting it to uh, Jesus's loving sacrifice for us. And he says, the way that you relate to her, the way that you care for her, it, it, it ought to be after the image and pattern of Jesus's love for you demonstrated on the cross. Now, what what was the point of Jesus' sacrificial love for you? Or he says in verse 26 and 27, it's to sanctify you. It's to change you. It's to take all your spots, all your wrinkles, everything broken, not just your guilt, but everything wrong within us, all our desires, and to begin to cleanse them and change them. Most scholars think what uh, Paul is doing here is he's, he's making an allusion to the Jewish and Greek custom of a bridal bath that would exist before the wedding ceremony, where they would have this extensive cleansing uh, and, and bath to prepare a bride to be married. But, G- but Paul here is saying that Jesus doesn't just do that beforehand, He does it throughout your whole life. In fact, what you have uh, in these sh- two verses is actually an extensive, thorough uh, unpacking of the nature of the fullness of salvation. That it begins with uh, the plan of salvation. It, 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 Paul talks about sanctification. He comes to change you. It talks about justification, uh, to cleanse you, to wash you with the water. And it talks about glorification, presenting you one day perfect, without stain, without wrinkle. There is a fullness that he has and gives us throughout the whole thing. There is never one part of salvation 
where Jesus just says, okay, here's the instructions, good luck. Um, when I was in high school, uh, my, my senior year, I, I took Latin five. Um, we can talk about that later, but I, I had five years of Latin. And the class we were, was about eight of us. And the professor, what he would literally do is just give us things to translate and, and he would just sit there. So it got to the point throughout the year that he just stopped coming to class and would have these translation projects. So we caught on very quickly and uh, just stopped doing that and would do it on our free time. And so one day the, uh, the headmaster was giving a tour to these enormous donors and walks in and we're all propped up sitting there uh, watching Top Gun. Um, and we got in trouble, but we were like, well, he's supposed to, like, take us through this. Look, there, there's no part of your salvation where Jesus is like, hey, here's what it is. I'll get back to you. He is meticulously involved in who we are from beginning to end to see us become somebody new. And Paul says, when you get into a marriage, that's your purpose, to move into somebody's story and to be a part of them, removing all of their stains, all of their wrinkles, and presenting them to become just like Jesus. See, if the paradigm is your own happiness, then change is either something you'll be threatened by or you will impatiently beg for. I mean, everybody wants their spouse to change. But what Paul is putting before us here is the question of why. Why do you want them to change? Do you want them to change for your own convenience so that you can make someone in your own image who makes life easier for you, or do you want someone to change because you want them to become the best self that they can be after the image of Jesus? See, the first one is selfishness, but the second one is love. Michelangelo was asked how, once how he made the statue of David. And he said this, he said, I looked deep inside that piece of marble and took out the pieces that weren't David. What marriage is, is not looking at somebody who will make you happy. It's looking at something, somebody and saying, I know what you can be. And I'm going to spend my life doing everything I can to help you become that. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, the Christian vision of marriage is to look at another person and get a glimpse of what God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you and it excites me and I want to be a part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now look at you. And Paul is telling us that's the purpose of marriage. Secondly, why do you need it to be like that? Well, everybody says, um, look, I'm not perfect. Uh, I know I'm not perfect, but uh, you sure feel like you're a little bit more than your spouse though, right? I mean, it, it's like, I know I'm not the best, but I'm better than you. When, when Paul says in verse 26 and 27 that Jesus came to remove spots, wrinkles, 
and sanctify and cleanse us from within and take out everything broken within us. He's not talking about your spouse. He's talking about you. And if you don't understand that the purpose of marriage is not for your spouse to be changed, it's for you to be changed, then you will quickly come to the conclusion that you've married the wrong person. Because all of us come into a marriage with, with problems. Paul Tripp, uh, in one of his articles, has a list of possible problems that you can bring into a marriage. Here's what he gives. Uh, you could bring fear that will manifest itself in anxiety. You can bring pride that will manifest itself in selfishness. You can bring an inflexibility that will manifest itself in being a very demanding person. You can bring in an undiscipline, which will manifest itself in being somebody who's very unreliable to be married to. You can bring in a perfectionist attitude, which means it will manifest itself in being very critical and very impatient. You can bring in the idea that you, don't, you hold grudges and are bitter that will manifest itself in lots of quiet fighting. Or you can bring in a cowardice attitude, which will manifest itself in lying all the time just to save face. And you know, the hard thing about singleness is that you are never convinced that those problems really are problems. Because in singleness, all your problems are like people borrowing $20 from you. Or excuse me, you borrowing $20 from somebody else. You know, we, if, if I borrow $20 from you and say, hey, can, can you give me a 20 and I'll pay you back, and I never do, like, you're annoyed by that. You think I'm cheap. You think I'm inauthentic. But you're not broke because of it. It's just annoying. That's how all of your siblings thought about your problems. That's how your parents kind of think about your problems. That's how your friends and your neighbors think about your problems. But when you get married, those things are not like taking $20 from somebody. It's like stealing from somebody's retirement fund. Everything is tied to it. Everything is impacted by this. And it's got the greatest stakes that you've ever been in. And while you're single, you're never in tune with that. And so what you begin to believe is that you can come into marriage and think, you need to be changed but not me. But what marriage is intended to do is not, is not bring you into somebody else's problems. It's to make you realize your own and to come in conflict and face and finally deal with those in an acute way you may have never, ever dealt with them before. Now, like two applications for this. One to the married. Look, if you're in a marriage um, that's been very frustrating and exhausting to you, you need to wake up and realize that the large part of your frustration is that you're coming in conflict with your own problems. Look, be, be honest with yourself. On a, a given week, you come in conflict with a ton of people's problems, right? That person in traffic, your coworker, your siblings, your neighbors, you're always hearing and running into other people's insecurities and problems. It just doesn't matter as much. And the reason this is so difficult and so frustrating is because your spouse is not just showing you their problems, it's exposing your inability to deal with their problems in a, well, in, in a done way. 
And if you don't believe that, then you will quickly come to the conclusion that you've made the mistake and married the wrong person. But you haven't. It's just for the first time, the mirror is no longer dim and it's no longer far away. It's right in your face. Now, for single people, you have got to understand that the purpose of marriage is to be changed in, in particularly you, or else you'll make enormous mistakes looking into a spouse. There was an article in um, New York Times several years ago called, She Can Play That Game Too, where 60 uh, University of Pennsylvania female students were interviewed, and they were noticing how uh, few people were dating on the college campus these days. Actually, people were pulling away from it. And uh, what the article said is she said, women want to wait to see how men turn out as they advance through their 20s. So what these women were doing is they're basically saying, get back to me in 10 years. One of the girls interviewed said this. She said, I've always heard this phrase, oh, marriage is great. Our relationships are great. You get to go on this journey of change together. That sounds terrible. I don't want to go on those changes with you. I want you to have changed and become enough of your own person so that when we meet, we can have this stable life and be very happy together. Look, if you're single and you believe that, two things will happen. On the one hand, you're going to unnecessarily delay marriage for a long time and hope somebody is perfect and you'll never find them. On the other hand, you will never be self-aware because you'll always be living this life of, uh, you need to grow up, you need to change. And the more you believe that, the more you will lose touch with the idea that you need to change. And someone needs to come in your life and do that for you. That's why we need that purpose. Thirdly, though, how does that work? How does it work to actually move into somebody's life be a part of changing them. Well, Paul gives it very succinctly throughout this text. He says it in 24 and 25 when he says to wives, submit as Christ submits to the church, excuse me, as the church submits to Christ. And then in verse 25, he says, husbands, love your wives. That he gives this language of submit and love. And this is his instruction manual for how we begin to participate in somebody else's story and one day present them to be more and more like Jesus. Now, what do, I'm going to unpack those words a whole lot more in detail next week, but let me give you a, a couple comments on them. Submission and love. Here, here's what they don't mean. Um, look, the context when he says, wives, submit to your husbands, is in the whole book of Ephesians. And if you read the whole book, Paul has gone to great lengths to say these things. Uh, everyone has dignity before God. And the redemption that we are participating in in Jesus is not one for females and one for males. It is one image after Jesus. There is an equality that we have before God that is measured only by our sinfulness that we all share and by the fullness of the cross given to us and imputated for us in a righteousness that is not of our own so that we stand on that merit and not anything that we bring 
on our gender or our role in our marriage. He also has gone to great lengths to show that there is a unity that is desired in the church where there is nobody over one another, that the bond that we have is the spirit of peace given to the Holy Spirit that is given to everybody who has faith. Now, the reason I'm saying that is because the word submit in this text has been so abused in so many marriages in the midst of the church for years. Look, when Paul says submit to your husbands, he says submit to your husband. That's not to all men. That's not a workplace demographic. That's not to apply to any other relationship, really, other than your particular husband. It also doesn't mean that uh, if you and your husband are talking about something and you have a disagreement, that he gets the trump card. Um, That's foolish. There's like tons of conversations where Becky and I have disagreed and she's had the wiser thing. And I've had to learn that the hard way. It also does not mean uh, to suppress your voice or to suppress your opinion or your opinion is lesser of value. Now, love, when he says love your wife, here's what that does not mean. That's not the easier role because it's, it's patterned after Jesus dying on the cross and laying his life down. It doesn't also mean just be nice, nor does it mean just be romantic nor does it mean to control or lord something over somebody. What what does he mean by submit? I think in a simple phrase, he means this by submit. Wives, put your care, put, put the care of your life under this man. I, I had a, um, a student, uh, this was like 15 years ago, uh, who we were going to meet for dinner, and uh, it, was, it was a Bible study, and um, uh, I, I, it was like he was five minutes late, so I just texted him. I said, hey, are you coming? And he never answered back, and I found out uh, like a month later that he was really mad at me. And I was like, why are, you, why are you so mad at me? And he goes, well, your text was really harsh. And I said, you mean the one where I wrote, are, are you coming? He said, yeah, I read it like, are you coming? And I was like, that's not how I meant it. Look, sometimes we read this text, wives submit to your husbands this way. Wives to your husbands submit. But what if, what if, you, what if Paul meant it this way? Wives, when you submit, do it to your husband. Because think, think about what it means to be a woman. Here's what it means to be a woman. You look for something to identify and shape and mold you. Now, if you're a woman and you deeply care about your physique and the need to be thin and the need to always look gorgeous and to be accomplished and maybe even to be independent, where are you getting that from? You know where you're getting that from. You're getting that from the culture telling you what a woman is. And what you've done is you've submitted yourself to the care of the culture. Now, any woman who's done that can have an honest moment and says, this is tormenting me. And what Paul is saying is, please stop submitting to that. 
Submit to a man who will not lord these things over you, who will die for you, who will lay his life down for you. And when he says, submit to him in everything, what that means is, ladies, take, take your life for this man who's laying his life down for you and put everything, all your energy, into making his, making his story great. It's not the suppression of your voice. It's the redirection of your voice to somebody else who will not misshape you, who will love you. Now, what does he mean by love? What does he mean by love? This is the longest part of the passage, and it's intriguing that he spends way more time talking about love than he does submit. But the whole pattern is after Jesus' relationship to the church, which should destroy any notion or concern that lording and controlling somebody's life could come out of this text. John Stott says, these words from Paul express care rather than control, responsibility rather than rule. In a practical way, what I think he's saying is, husbands, this is your priority. Not your job, not your accomplishments, not your wealth, Now, when anybody thinks about you, your role, your priority is to lay your life down for this woman so that she knows she's as cared and loved and taken care of as the church knows that Jesus has done that for them. It is a laying the life down. It is a protection from evil. It is a spiritual and emotional nourishment to say, "I, I will, I will sacrifice my fear. I will move towards you in hard conversations even though I'm a huge people pleaser. I will say no to other things out there even though it would improve my reputation and maybe even make my career great. Why? Because making you flourish and laying myself down to all the things that could be great for me is the priority of my life. And Paul says, do that. How do you live the purpose of marriage? You obey the manual that God has given us for marriage, which is if you're a husband, you lay your life down. If you're a wife, you say, I will put myself under the flourishing and care, not of anything out there, but of this man. Now, fourthly, quickly, a challenge for that. This is rather quick, but notice the text does not say, Love her as long as she submits. And nor does it say, submit so long as he loves you very well. It just says, love her. No matter if she makes it hard. No matter if she never submits. No matter if it's like constantly trying to tame a horse that will not be tamed. And ladies, it says, submit. Even if he doesn't love. Now, that is not a license for abuse. It is not a license to take abuse. If you've ever been abused and hurt, you need to talk to somebody about that. But what he is advocating for is the way that we go into those roles, the way that we pursue this, it's grace and grace alone. Why why are you this way to somebody else? It's because Jesus was like this to me first. He says in the text, just as and in the same way. 
Fifthly and lastly, what do you need to know in order to pursue that? Look, you can't do this. You can't be this for somebody else unless this is first happening to you. I mean, it's the principle of, of the oxygen mask on the airplane. You know, um, you know, when you get on the airplane and they say, if, if this thing's going down, which by the way, I don't know how this is supposed to help you if that happens, but they always tell you, put this on yourself first before you do it to somebody else because if you, if you don't do this, then you're useless to the other person. Look, if... If Jesus is not doing these things to you, it's impossible for you to do that to somebody else. The backbone of this passage throughout the whole thing is who Jesus is to the church, that He comes to us and He provides full salvation. He exhibits that in His Word, sealed in baptism to mark our life of being changed and taking all of our spots and wrinkles and one day hoping to present us before the glory of God to make us perfect and blemished. That means if you want to be great in marriage, if you want to have a thriving marriage, the most valuable thing that you can do is pursue your own godliness. That is that you deal with your own spots and wrinkles. Do, do you know those? Do you, do you know the parts of your life that Jesus needs to most meticulously come in with the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit and change? Do you know the idols that dominate your life? Do you know the parts of your story that are unresolved and you're just taking that pain out on other people and hoping they can fix that thing? Because unless that's dealt with, unless that is healed, it's impossible to be who you need to be for the other person and be a part of redeeming and healing their story in a marriage. How, I mean, how do you do that? Here's what you need to know. You've got to look to Jesus. Look at Jesus. I mean, look at His relationship to the disciples. Look, you, when you, if you have to think about loving somebody... Who, who will not listen to you, who will not follow you. Think of Jesus. I mean, over and over and over again, He talked about, here's what my kingdom's going to be like. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to lay my life down. And the disciples would come back, so glory, taking over Rome, can we sit on the throne with you? And when He's in His most dire moments, in the garden, praying he looks over and they're asleep, uninterested in what he's going to do. And even there, he says, the flesh is willing, but the spirit, the spirit has failed, which means I know you tried. He never, ever stopped pursuing them. And after they denied him, he goes to Peter and he doesn't say, hey, I'll never forget how much you betrayed me. He goes and gently restores him and empowers him and renews him. If you're in a moment where submission is so hard, I mean, Jesus is looking at the wrath of God in the garden and he's staring into that cup 
And he just says, I, 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 is there any way, is there any way I do not have to submit to this? And the father basically says, this is the only way. And he just answers, thy will be done for you. Look, if you want to be this, you've got to see him being this for you. And that's got to be the defining part of your story so that it can be your story, a part of being this to somebody else in a marriage. Because this is the purpose of marriage. A friend of mine, or excuse me, a mentor of mine told me this is how he figured out who he wanted to marry. He said they were in high school and they had scheduled a date for a Friday night. And um, he was all planning on taking her to a movie and about an hour before that happened, um, in the basement of his house in Philadelphia, the sewage line broke and it began to flood so that there was about, you know, about three or four inches of just sewage water flooding the basement. And his mom said, you're not going out, you're going to clean that up. So he called her and he said, I'm sorry, I have to break the date tonight, I can't. Um, something happened and I've got to go clean it up. Uh, maybe we can go out next week. She said, Okay. So he's down in the basement, just this horrible stench, just a bucket picking up this sewage and tossing it out. And he hears the basement door open. And he hears steps coming down the basement door. And he looks over, and it's his girlfriend, Barb. And she's got rubber boots on. She steps right into the mess. She just says, Hand me a bucket. He said, he said, he turned and grabbed one and said, she's the one. <laughs> Look, this is what marriage is. Stepping into somebody's mess and saying, hand me a bucket. Who, who will do that for you? Because what Paul tells you in this text is that Jesus already has. Receive that. Let me pray. Father, pray for marriages. Pray for our lives. I pray that we would understand that what you call us to is so much more profound, so much more beautiful than just pure happiness, which actually ends up being an amazing byproduct of all of this. Lord, would you uh, heal us, redeem us, come into our marriages by the power of your Holy Spirit, and work in wonderful ways that we could one day stand before you and look at spouses and just say, I knew you could be like this. Help us along the way in Jesus' name. Amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.